Lord Jesus Christ, you said to your apostles, I leave you peace, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church and grant us the peace and unity of your kingdom where you live forever and ever. Amen. Good Catholics. <laughs> Wrote mechanistic replies. We, um, uh, we take pride in that. And uh, uh, we believe in routine and habits and, and worship. And uh, many of us have heard those words many times. Many of us heard them last Sunday. Latare Sunday. The great reading of the prodigal son, or many of, many of us will hear them tomorrow, right here, uh, I think a lot of us. Um, the beautiful story of the woman caught in adultery. Story of repentance and reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Similar theme in these words, look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church. And grant us the peace and unity of your kingdom where you live forever and ever. After which the presider greets the assembly with the words, the peace of the Lord be with you always, to which the assembly responds, then comes the invitation offered by the deacon if present, let us offer each other the sign of peace. And then as the rubrics in the sacramentary indicate, all make an appropriate sign of peace according to local custom. <laughs> local customs vary, yeah. St. Matthew's Parish, which is, uh, we're within those boundaries, friendly but formal. St. <laughs> Adelbert's, uh, the Spanish Mass, friendly but not formal. St. <laughs> Augustine's Sunday Mass goes on for about 10 minutes because it's a small congregation and everyone gives everyone present the sign of peace. And uh, up at the dorm masses at Notre Dame, the sign of peace is a five-minute hug fest where young people break, uh, break up, <laughs> come back together, reconcile, friendships are forged, and uh, everyone runs around in pajamas, late-night mass. And then, as you were saying, the, the daily mass, this, across ten pews, this, which always reminds me of uh, Jay Houlihan, a friend of ours, uh, my family's, where I grew up in Albany, New York, Delmar, New York, just south of Albany. And uh, the sign of peace came into being in the liturgy in the mid to late 60s, I believe. I think it was uneven, depending on the diocese. But it, it, it was practiced at St. Thomas the Apostle Church I think it started up around 66 or 67 in the wake of the uh, council and the reform of the liturgy. And Jay Houlihan was Irish, was Catholic, very much Albany, stout, Buddha-like belly, crop, close crop gray hair, uh, you might say a keg with legs. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, during the sign of peace, he would just go like this and look straight forward. He was a wonderful man. He was so good to me when I was a kid. He was in the Marines, but he didn't have some of the roughness that gets associated with a certain stereotype of Marines. He taught me how to swim. I could never catch the butterfly. I could never figure out how to do that. But 
he, he was very convivial, shall we say. He loved to drink beer. And he always, on vacations, our families would go on vacations together, and he always brought his wife, Kay, a Bloody Mary in the morning. But the first thing he always did was to go to church. Go to church every day. Not for mass, necessarily, but as he would put it, for a visit. Before the Blessed Sacrament. Praying the rosary. He would pray the rosary while driving. He would pray the rosary while cussing out other drivers. And, uh, he went to war. He came back. He had two sons. Why didn't he go for the sign of peace? This good man. Good man. You know, and that's a question, I think, that we could put before us. Because we, oh, peaceniks, and people who have committed our lives to peacemaking, live in the midst of a church in the United States that doesn't grasp, embrace, I suppose we could have to say modestly, the fullness of the sign of peace. What if we did? 70 million Catholics in the United States, as Michael Griffin points out in the editorial, marvelous editorial he wrote in the recent issue of the sign of peace. Such a high number of Catholics in Congress, five out of nine Supreme Court justices, the number of Catholics in the upper echelons of US society. We're not just an immigrant church anymore, working class population, we are that, but we also now, Catholics, succeed in business, the professions of medicine and law, in academia, and in the military. Of officers in the Marine Corps, I've read that Catholics constitute somewhere of 40%. Enlisted personnel, very high percentages too. All, almost all, the vast majority certainly readily serving in the armed forces with the help of a well-developed chaplain corps dating back to World War I. We have ROTC and Catholic campuses, priests and bishops giving support to, as it says often that you hear it in the intercessory prayers, our young people in the military. Or we often hear the intercessions, let us pray for our young people serving in the military that they may be kept out of harm's way. To which I'm always tempted to respond, let us pray for their people serving in the military that they may be kept in harm's way too. The evasion of Iraq, we concern ourselves rightly with civilian deaths, but how many military deaths? Tens and tens of thousands, which calls into question the war. A just war question that we should be, should be asking. Anyway, the United States is conceived as a thought of as a Christian nation, in many ways a nation in which Catholicism is on the ascendancy. And Catholics are doing what people do when they are succeeding in an empire on the ascendancy, running bombing raids in Iraqi cities, carrying out abuse and torture of prisoners in Guantanamo Bay and elsewhere, Catholics sitting in nuclear missile silos ready to turn the launch key on command. So how do we understand this the way we have received this peace that Christ has given us with the commission to bear it in the world? And the answer is, I guess we would have to say not very well. 
And this might tempt us, I think, lead us to a plan of action to oust the present governing authorities from the White House, from the Congress, from the Supreme Court, from various levels of elected and appointed office. A plan of political action, in other words, political action in the conventional sense of politics in the United States, where we have the power of the ballot, the power of our collective voices. And so we turn to the next election. After 2000, there's the 2002 midterm elections. And after that, there's the 2004 presidential elections. And after that, there's the 2006 midterm elections this past fall. And now many peace-minded people look to the upcoming presidential election in 2008 as the thing to strive for in order to make peace. Without denying the sincerity of these efforts, electoral efforts, and without denying the impact they might have, I want to suggest that these efforts have deep problems. For one thing, they cost a lot of money. So much so that now you cannot get elected in the United States unless you are extremely wealthy. For another thing, the alternatives are rarely, if ever, war and peace, but rather different levels, different strategies for waging war and for winning war. Put bluntly, the Democrats are hardly what we might call the anti-war party, certainly not a peace party in any real sense of that much-abused word. Let's not forget, in the fall of 2002, the Democrats in Congress, as well as the Republicans, gave the Bush administration the green light for the invasion of Iraq. Moreover, it was the Clinton administration, as well as the Bush administration, that carried out the deadly policy of economic embargo of Iraq throughout the 90s, an embargo that is judged one of the most stringent and merciless in modern history, an embargo that constitutes legally and morally an act of war. Thinking of the Democrats, we could go back further to the Carter administration, the best ex-president we've ever had. But while he was president, the deployment of the neutron bomb and the reinstitution of draft registration in 1980, which was a response to the Soviet incursion into Afghanistan. Isn't it funny how things come around? We could go back to the Johnson administration with its escalation of the war in Vietnam, what they now call a troop surge because they don't like the word escalation. It's too reminiscent of that, year, that time. I want to note, in short, and perhaps with a bit of cynicism, that the Democratic Party will readily become the war party if it should prove to serve the interests of the elected officials whose primary interest is to get reelected. But there's another problem with this electoral approach to pursuing peace, the problem of its divisive nature, not just in the nation at large, we all know that, but also within the church, especially within the church, most egregiously within the church. For lots of complicated reasons, historically, this division of the church now between left and right, liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican, our conference is called Neither Left Nor Right, The Heart of Christian Peacemaking. I want to make a basic point. The church is being torn apart by this chronic division between left, right, liberal, conservative, progressive, Catholic, Orthodox Catholic, as if there were other, some other type. Commonwealth Catholics, first things Catholics, cafeteria Catholics, Rambo Catholics, as Kathy Caveney calls her opponents in the law school here at Notre Dame. 
And these divisions are tearing apart the Catholic Church just as they have torn apart the mainstream Protestant denominations ever since the end of the Second World War, which is not a coincidence because it is the result in each case, in each denomination, that the division besetting the churches is the product of the absorption of those churches into the U.S. mainstream, and more particularly into the political culture of the United States. The result is that the word of the Christ and the way of discipleship gets tamed, watered down, domesticated, so that now Catholics, good Catholics, sincere Catholics, committed Catholics, imagine they must choose between these two false and quite honestly unfaithful alternatives. In these days, when it comes to pursuing peacemaking, we must say that the path does not mean and can never mean opting to approach the peace of the Democratic Party, which is woefully negligent when it comes to peace for the unborn and the terminally ill. As many conservative Catholics are quick to point out, and right to point out, I'm no conservative, even less a neoconservative, but I do believe that Catholic conservatives are at their most accurate in their criticisms of Catholic liberals on these so-called life issues. Although at the same time, Catholic liberals are at their most accurate in their criticisms of Catholic conservatives on other life issues, the death penalty, economic justice, war. In other words, both right and left are most compelling when they are criticizing each other. <laughs> and yet both woefully inadequate in putting forth the fullness and true depth or heart of Christian peacemaking. Now, much of what I'm saying here has already been said by others, most notably perhaps by Jim Wallace in his book, God's Politics, with its catchy subtitle, Why the Right is Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. Uh, some of us were with Jim Wallace last week in Washington, D.C., spoke very inspirationally, but Jim Wallace was critical of the Christian peace movement for not offering, this is in the run-up to the Iraq war, for not offering the nation effective alternatives to war. Criticizing the radical peace movement, I think he had in mind voices in the wilderness types and Catholic worker types and civil disobedience types for not offering practical solutions to the problem of Saddam Hussein. But the problem with the problem of Saddam Hussein is that there were no solutions any peaceful ones, none that would satisfy U.S. policymakers, perhaps. And I fear that this still remains the case, for there are no solutions when we approach problems from the state-centered political perspective. Or if solutions do emerge, they will run into the same problems that other former solutions have run into, which have become all too familiar with us, the problem of effectiveness. That's a great ideal, but what about the real world, capital R, capital W? Without taking up these problems direct, directly and without taking away from the good work that is done by people who are seeking peace through a certain form of political activism, I want to call our attention elsewhere to take guidance and the person that I have in mind to give us guidance is a woman that we've already heard much about this morning and who is, was, the inspiration and mentor and mother, in a way, of the Catholic Peace Fellowship, namely Dorothy Day. I like to say that the Catholic Peace Fellowship was born out of the heart of the Catholic worker. 
And in particular, I want to draw attention to the editorial she wrote for the January 1942 issue of The Catholic Worker, written just after the United States had entered the Second World War. Pearl Harbor had been attacked. The president had declared war on Japan, Germany, and the other Axis powers. Young men were enlisting in the military, including my father, including Jay Houlihan. The nation was mobilizing for war. It must have felt then like 9-11 in the weeks after felt not long ago. And the headline in the Catholic Worker, which we could see reproduced in the sign of peace, this issue, and there's about uh, 800 copies out there, so please help yourself. <laughs> the headline read as, read as follows. Our country passes from undeclared to declared war. We continue our pacifist stand. And it continues. In addition to the weapons of starvation of its enemy, our country is now using weapons of Navy, Army, Air Force in a month of great feasts, a time of joy in Christian life. The world plunges itself still deeper into the horror of war. It's an editorial, but it's placed in the center columns of page one as a letter addressed to dear fellow workers in Christ. From this editorial, I'd like to lift out five themes or features which go to the heart of Christian peacemaking, lingering over this editorial, which I'm assuming that many of you are familiar with. One, prayerful discernment. The editorial begins as a letter to fellow workers in Christ, but right away it shifts into a prayer, quote, Lord God, merciful God, our Father, Shall we keep silent or shall we speak? And if we speak, what shall we say? And then comes the setting of the prayer. She writes, I am sitting here in the church on Mott Street, writing this in your capital Y presence. Out on the streets it is quiet, but you are there too, in the Chinese in the Italians, these neighbors we love. We love them because they are our brothers, we might say to our sisters, as Christ is our brother and God our Father. And then comes the situation. But we have forgotten so much. We have all forgotten. And how can we know unless you tell us? followed by a quote from Romans 10. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then are they to call upon him in whom they have not believed? Paul writes. And how are they to believe him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear if no one preaches? And how are people to preach unless they are sent? A sense of mission, being sent, an apostolic identity. The word means to be sent. As an apostle, like the Apostle Paul, we have to remember this, lest we forget. We are, after all, Paul points out elsewhere in Romans and his other letters, lost in our sins. Heirs to the legacy of Adam. We suffer the effects of the fall. Humanity was created as one, Adam a single person. 
and then Eve, whose flesh was taken from Adam, and then from their flesh, Cain and Abel and our progenitors, and then the tragedy of the fall, when the unity of this original human family was shattered. Like a china doll crashing on the floor and breaking into a thousand pieces. So humanity becomes divided into tribes, peoples, nations, eventually empires, all who are at war with one another, Germans, Italians, Japanese, Americans, people in the neighborhood, Afghanis, Iraqis, Iranians, Koreans. And the mission is to recall the unity of all humanity by preaching the gospel. For how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, she writes. And Dorothy's message was carried out according to her vocation. As a journalist, which she always described herself as, as a writer. So the question to take up in this letter, she continues, 75,000 copies of the Catholic Worker go out every month. What shall we print? We will print the words of Christ, who is always with us even until the end of the world. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who persecute and calumniate you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven who makes his Son to rise on the good and the evil and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We are at war, she says, a declared war with Japan, Germany, and Italy, but still we can repeat Christ's words each day, holding them close in our hearts, each month printing them in the paper. That's her vocation. What's your vocation? How do you carry it out? Each of us has a unique answer, and we can only grasp that answer in prayer by turning to God, as Dorothy turned to God, sitting there on the church on Mott Street before the Blessed Sacrament, probably writing notes. Jim Forrest noted last night that Dorothy was always writing notes. Messages, perhaps, from the Holy Spirit. On what to say, what to write. She writes about Christ and how the unity of all humanity is restored in Christ, the new Adam who reminds us that we are all brothers and sisters. In the months before the invasion of Iraq, the Dominicans put out a button that many of us wore. It said, I have family in Iraq. The Dominican family had settled in Iraq long before, French-speaking, beautiful people, other families, too, little brothers of Jesus, little sisters of Jesus. We're all family. So many Christians in Iraq are our family. Tom Cornell and I went to Iraq, and this is one of the things we came back with. All people, children of God, a unity embodied in the church, so remarkable that you go to an exotic place like Iraq and you recognize in the ancient Chaldean language as they would point out very proudly, the language of our Lord. And it's the same liturgy. A unity embodied in the church. Which brings up a second feature of Dorothy's letter that I wish to note, and that is its unapologetic ecclesial nature. She writes as a laywoman and a daughter of the church. 
What shall we print? Actually, the first thing she says is this. We can still print what the Holy Father is saying when he speaks of total war, of mitigating the horrors of war, when he speaks of cities of refuge, of feeding Europe. She turns to the Pope, Pius XII. Surely she was disappointed in her heart of hearts that the popes did not take the pacifist stand. But even so, she uses what the Holy Father says as a way to help Catholics remember who we are. The popes may espouse just war doctrine, but there is also in just war doctrine an appeal for peace, especially in the 20th century, where all wars have been in violation of the just war doctrine. In the midst of World War I, we can remember, as she surely did, the words of Benedict XV, the peace pope. The same can be said of Benedict XVI, who took that name in part because of his desire also to be a peace pope in the midst of this war. The present pope is not, I venture to say, going to revise the church's just war tradition. And yet, perhaps he will, as they do with the death penalty, affirm it in principle, but not in practice. We can only hope. And yet we will use the just war tradition to criticize this war as he did in September of 2002 when as prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, he criticized the Bush administration's doctrine of preventive war, which they are now getting ready to use in Iran. And as he did in May of 2003 after the invasion, declaring that it was unnecessary and unjust. Like Dorothy, we can take the words of the Pope and use those to help us remember just as we have often done, many of us in this room have spent much of our lives remembering the words of John the 23rd in Pachamon Terrace, issued on April 15th, 1963. Not a pacifist document, but one which affirmed pacifists and conscientious objectors, and they're very important. Very useful. The same with Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world, when the fathers of the Second Vatican Council lamented the scourge of war, of war and issued a stern condemnation of nuclear war, an abomination that merits unhesitating condemnation, perhaps the strongest language of the council. That paragraph was placed in that document due to efforts of Catholics like Dorothy Day, who went to Rome to lobby for it, and Eileen Egan, and Jim Douglas, by the way, a founding board member of the Catholic Peace Fellowship, and many others. In recent weeks, Mike Griffin, Tom Cornell, Josh Castile, who are all with us today, went to Rome to do a similar thing, met with various offices and dicasteries of the Holy See, even met the Pope himself. We'll be hearing more about their remarkably successful trip at the end of this afternoon, but I just want to say, this is good. This is good. We appeal to our tradition, statements of bishops too, like we often do the challenge of peace, especially those wonderful paragraphs 275 and 76, which are in there because of Bishop Tom Gumbleton. On the way of Jesus being countercultural, discipleship is demanding, leading to ridicule, rejection, the way of the cross. There's a lot that I was less than enthused of in the challenge of peace, but I'll use what I can. <laughs>
I was much more inspired by the words of another bishop who, in his pastoral letter at the invasion of Iraq, called upon his flock to refuse to participate in war, and that letter stands as a ray of sun in a dark time. And I would like, right here and now, to recognize the author of that letter, Bishop John Michael Bodian. And please stand up, Bishop Bodian. Where are you? Thank you. On this day, we should remember another bishop, right? March 24th, Oscar Romero a great martyr of our time, preaching peace. Lay down your weapons. We thought Catholics are thought to labor under great thought control, waking up every morning and listening to the orders coming, emanating from Rome. But we don't operate like that as we all know. But we'll take our authorities where we can. And we'll take our saints, too. As Dorothy writes, in times past, Europe has been a battlefield. But let us remember St. Francis, who spoke of peace. And we will remind our readers of him, too, so they will not forget. Make me an instrument of your peace. Other saints as well, Polycarp, Justin, St. Telemachus, who tried to break up the gladiatorial games and got killed for it. And then they stopped. Soldier martyrs such as Nereus and Achilles, May 12th, or Marcellus, who Michael Griffin uh, referred to. My theory is that Marcellus was a martyr in Algeria, and the Congregation of Holy Cross had missions in Algeria, and somehow they were able to get those relics because of the connection between um, uh, the Algerian missions and the United States missions. That's my theory, and um, um, I might just say that. And Wait till someone proves me wrong. <laughs> so we academics work on hunches and then we scramble for the, the, the warrant. Um, we could go on, but what about saints, right? Dorothy and saints. Beautiful book on Therese Ligia. Under-publicized book. She's using the tradition of the church to help us remember who we are and to help us see using the tradition at times against other understandings of the tradition. There's texts and there's countertexts. She would use Father Hugo, whose nephew is here today with us, Michael Hugo. And she would, she would use that and push in a certain direction. against corruptions of the tradition, a kind of practice of clarification of thought, or we might say purification of thought, a way to jostle and conjole and to startle consciences and to remind. Which brings up a third feature, the support of conscientious objectors. Dorothy writes, speaking for many of our conscientious objectors, we will not participate in armed warfare or in making munitions or by buying government bonds to prosecute the war or in urging others in these efforts. 135 Catholics in the Second World War, 
conscientious objectors, many born out of the Catholic worker associated with the Association of Catholic Conscientious Objectors, one of whom was uh, a resident at Camp Simon and who wrote about it after in a marvelous book that should be republished called Another Part of the War by Gordon Zahn, who then went on to write about an Austrian conscientious objector who conscientiously objected on just war grounds by the name of Franz Jägerstetter. And we know him because he helped us remember. And we know also of Ben Salmon, who was also reported on his letter in the same issue of The Catholic Worker, January of 1942, which is reproduced in part in The Sign of Peace. Dorothy called for draft resistance, non-cooperation, total non-cooperation. Quoting Bishop McNicholas of Cleveland, she called for a mighty league of Catholic conscientious objectors. Fill the jails. A collective voice for peace. Well, that didn't materialize, but that's no reason not to say it. It might. Miracles happen. Well, it did materialize years later. The Vietnam War. Thanks, we could say, to many of Dorothy's children, Jim Forrest, Tom Cornell, Tim Douglas, so many others, who spent the hard work sitting with people, helping to discern their consciences. A difficult process. The church teaches that conscience is the voice of God witnessing within to the natural law. But it's not easy to hear that voice It can never be totally silenced, but it can be muted and ignored and garbled and distorted by sin. Sin is something that we can cultivate interiorly with the help of our dissatisfied egos and disordered loves and appetites, but it can also be shaped outside our tendency to sin, reinforced by social, economic, political structures, including nationalist ideologies, which is troubling to us. Just war, pacifism. Most Catholics are neither. Most Catholics are blank check. In words of John Howard Yoder. Catholics, like so many others, pledge their allegiance to their country, right or wrong, and are obedient to their nation before all else, before the natural law, before the divine law, before the words and example of Christ, before conscience within the problem is, in a word, idolatry. The nation-state has taken the place of God. Which is why John Paul II, whose words I'll use, in Veritatis Splendor, an encyclical that defends the notion that some acts are intrinsically evil and therefore never justifiable, this is why, in connection with that argument, he denounces the way in which modern, value-free democracies foster ethical relativism, and thus, as he puts it, quote, turns into open or thinly disguised totalitarianism, unquote. This is also why in Evangelium Vitae, a related encyclical, John Paul II decries what he calls, quote, the tyrant state for arrogating itself the right to dispose of society's weakest and most defenseless members for the unborn to the elderly. 
And his chief concern, obviously, is abortion and euthanasia, but he was also concerned with the death penalty, and he is also concerned with war. There are crimes that no human law can claim to legitimize. There is no obligation in conscience to obey, obey unjust laws. Instead, there is a grave and clear obligation, John Paul II writes, to oppose him by conscientious objection. From the beginning of the church, the apostolic teaching reminded Christians of their duty to obey legitimately constituted public authority. But at the same time, it firmly warned we must obey God rather than men. Please note, the Pope is quoting Peter and the other apostles from a statement that was entered into the record while they were on trial before the Sanhedrin after spending a night in jail. We can take hope from this point. We can take hope that we too can live this life of conscience, which is why we in the CPF argue conscience this voice of God witnessing to the natural law within. Waging war is not intrinsically evil, but waging an unjust war is always evil. And in those cases, the call for conscientious objection is equally urgent as any other life issue, as it is in regard, say, to abortion or euthanasia. We could even say, more urgent given the way the passions of the American people can be so easily manipulated during wartime. The Catholic Peace Fellowship renews Dorothy's call for a mighty league of conscientious objectors, I admit, somewhat playfully. But furthermore, suppose, and I take this thought experiment from Frank Cordero, suppose an application of something I heard him say once, that Catholic moral theologians agree with this judgment and the 375,000 Catholics in the armed services who presumably subscribe to just war theory all become selective conscientious objectors and will not participate in the war. Suppose they do that. How effective would that be? All of them are obligated to examine their consciences. Some of them object to this war. Let's say half end up objecting, 185,000 SCOs, or a third, 125,000, or 10%, 37,500 military personnel come forth as SCOs. That might make the papers. Well, we have a lot to do, and it's a lot of hard work of pastors and parents and high school teachers and college teachers and youth group directors, but we do know scores of conscientious objectors in the military who have heeded this voice within and have acted. This is the power of the Holy Spirit in history. This is the way God works. You might say that this vision is uh, not very realistic if you take heed of the big picture, but you know, that's not our goal. Which brings up the fourth feature that I want to mention. It is this. Dorothy's emphasis, not on effectiveness, but we could say on fruitfulness. Dorothy in her letter calls 
for the works of mercy, the spiritual and the corporal works of mercy. She acknowledges that there'll be difficulties with the government. But neither will we be carping in our criticism. We love our country and we love our president. This is the work of charity, these words. We have been the only country in the world where men and women of all nations have taken refuge from oppression. We recognize that while in the order of intention, we have tried to stand for peace, for love of our brothers and sisters, in the order of execution, we have failed as living, as Americans in living up to our principles. When we go before our government, we do it in all charity and love. And you know what else? Love toward each other. Let me read this. Our works of mercy in the midst of this war. As editor of the Catholic Worker, I would urge our friends and associates to care for the sick and the wounded, to the growing of food for the hungry, to the continuance of all our works of mercy in our houses and on our farms. We have a few years set before that starts here. We understand, of course, that there is and there will be great differences of opinion even among our own group as to how much collaboration we can have with the government in times like this. There are differences more profound and there will be many continuing to work with us from necessity or from choice who do not agree with us as to our position on war, conscientious objection, but we beg that there will be mutual charity and forbearance toward all, toward each other. Divisions which we might see here in our midst over how far to cooperate with the government, when to resist. These are important arguments to have. These are important discussions. But there's a danger when they degenerate into arguments for effectiveness. CO counseling. How effective is that? Working in parishes, teaching high school, college, civil disobedience, tax resistance. Which is the most effective? Wrong question. They are all fruitful. Fruits of the passion of Christ. Fruits of the Holy Spirit. I was first exposed to the peace movement by reading a book entitled Quotations from Chairman Jesus by David Kirk, with an introduction by a Jesuit priest by the name of Daniel Berrigan, who wrote at one point, in the introduction, I cannot be saved by the Vatican. I cannot be saved by the peace movement. I cannot be saved by the CIA or the Buddhist World Association. I can only be saved by Jesus Christ. And there I was, a sophomore in high school, reading that book, and I still remember where I bought it, the Del Mar Pharmacy. And I went home that night, said I bought this book, and my brother-in-law said, Father Berrigan. And my father gasped. <laughs> and I said, who's he? Because <laughs> I didn't know. A little book on a rack. A little book on a rack. You know, think of the fruitfulness. Think of the fruitfulness. Father Berrigan, the plowshares movement. So powerful. Kieran O'Reilly a plowshares activist in Ireland, had a big effect on Michael Schorsch, who stands over there. He was saying it the other day. And now he sits with conscientious objectors on the phone 30 hours a week, hearing people 
who then come back and say, thank you for being there. John Howard Yoder's books, so powerful, powerful influence on me, on Margie File, who then assigns his books and teaches people who then will go out and be fruitful. Father Hugo's retreats that Dorothy writes about. Kathy Breen goes to Iraq. Kathy Kelly goes to Iraq. All fruitfulness. All fruits of the passion and death of Christ. All lying at the heart of Christian peacemaking. And it all leads back to Dorothy? No. To Christ, who gives us the gift of peace. And this brings us back to the fifth and final feature, prayer. Dorothy closes her letter with a prayer that goes like this, and may the blessed Mary, mother of beautiful love and of fear and of knowledge and of holy hope, pray for us. The queen of peace, it's a prayer for eternal life. All of us, all of our perplexities will be resolved. Especially mine between Jay Houlihan. I often think that eternal life, Jay will be there and say, come on in for a swim. The water's fine. And that's the unity and the peace of the kingdom. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church and grant us the peace and unity of your kingdom where you live forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.